Welcome to Weird Sauce, a podcast about formulas. In these conversations, I intend to rethink with you the rhythms of our lives. From the exceptional to the routine, I wander into the patterns, the alchemy of experiences, good and bad, from scientists to high achievers. Life is not a long, quiet river, so follow me upstream into the extraordinary, the storms, the mishaps, the components that may inspire you today and tomorrow. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice. Your health is your responsibility and that of your physician. Always seek advice from your physician before choosing any lifestyle interventions you may have heard in this podcast. Jason Pratinetti, good evening and thank you for uh, welcoming us into your home, I believe, in the United States and uh, good morning from us in Singapore. Could you kindly introduce yourself for the audience um, of this podcast? Thank you, Florence, for having me. It's, a, it's an honor to be to be here. Um, my name is Jason Paternity. Um, currently, I'm in uh, Virginia, just outside of Washington, D.C., in the United States. I am a investment manager, is, is my day job, but my, my true passion is uh, conservation. Um, and I've managed to create a life for myself where um, I can pursue my dream. And as I've worked over these past 30 years in finance, I've learned a lot about what I need to do to be more effective uh, in, in my role in conservation. And that's, that is really what, what drives me and what, I, what I'd like to share with you tonight. So tell us what you mean by conservation, because I think in, 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 the, in the year of many people, it can mean many different things. So is it conservation of nature? Is it conservation of animals? Is it conservation of human beings? As we talk a lot about medical stuff yeah. on this podcast. When, when I talk about conservation, um, we set up a uh, charity in 2010 called Geos Foundation. And the focus of this charity was to try to take some of the lessons that I've learned in the financial markets and apply them to solutions for conservation, be it natural heritage conservation, which could be uh, archaeological sites, uh, world heritage sites, or for natural conservation, which could be uh, as broad as landscape conservation projects down to endangered individual species conservation. So our, our focus, um, we've, we've worked on projects all over the world. We, we try to have, maintain some balance between the animal and landscape conservation and the cultural heritage conservation projects. But for both of them, um, what we like to call in, in the finance market, um, our unique edge, uh, we approach each one of these projects from the perspective of if this was a startup, uh, if this was a, a venture capital type opportunity, we would look to understand who, who are the project sponsors, who, who are the operators, what, what are their unique skill sets, what resources do they have, what resources don't they have, is it capital, uh, is it just financing for a project, or are they they specialized in a unique aspect of um, nautical archaeology, for example. They've spent their entire career understanding wooden hull construction methodologies, uh, but don't necessarily have the training to understand how one undertakes 
negotiating with governments for um, permits to operate in host countries, um, the logistics project management of moving materials and people to a remote difficult site, um, how to manage the financing, how to fundraise for the project. Um, so what we found over the years was really our, our, our niche was to be able to resource, not just financially, which we do, but also technically provide capabilities to fill in the gaps of what we always look for is someone, either an individual or a technology uh, that has the opportunity to really change uh, an outcome in a particular space, be it for, um, we've worked in Guatemala um, to identify uh, Mayan ruins, um, using a technology back, this was back in 2010, uh, we used one of the first LiDAR um, systems uh, operated on a drone in order to rapidly scan a forest area uh, to look for um, remains using a LiDAR band um, of technology, which was very successful. Um, but it, 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 from our perspective, what, what we like about these projects is when we can use a small investment uh, in a technology that can leverage an outcome and have a greater impact. So um, as we look at landscape or endangered species conservation, um, you know, our focus is not just to raise money for to save the elephants or to save the rhinos, but to try to find a meaningful solution to if our if our immediate goal is to reduce poaching in a particular area, can we find a unique way, um, potentially a high tech solution, uh, but oftentimes it may just be a solution that comes from the bush uh, that hasn't been thoughtfully applied uh, at scale. And we can talk a bit about what that means. But um, from our perspective, really our goal is to be the, the risk taker to support these projects, uh, to get them off the ground out of the nest. And then larger organizations that are better funded are more stable platforms, but really aren't in a position to be able to take risk on these smaller startup opportunities. Um, they look to us to prove the concept, um, demonstrate that it's a viable project, it's a viable project team. Um, I always look for coming from the financial markets, it's very easy to get into positions. Uh, it's very easy to get involved in conservation projects. It's a lot harder to find a an exit for, for a project, not, not just in terms of an ongoing funding commitment, but the, the ethical obligation one undertakes when you get involved in these projects, it's very difficult to walk away from them. Um, so before we get involved in a project, we tend to look to say, where is this going? You know, what, what, do, we, what do we consider a successful outcome? Um, how would we define that? And what happens after us? You know, it's not just enough to go in emotionally and say, I, I, I care about gorillas. Many of us do, but if you wanna have a long-term successful um, relationship with the animal, with the communities around, with the governments, you know, we need to really think about how, how, how do we get into these projects, but also what happens when we have to step back. So our focus really is viewing ourselves as we, we like to prove the concept, and then we like to work with larger organizations that can't take the risk that we can take, but once we've, we've, we've proven that a technique, a technology, a management team is capable, we then look to push that 
opportunity, that solution upwards to, to larger platforms. And that's, that's really what our focus has been on for, for the last 10 to 12 years. Right. So the question that I would have would be, how do you go from being um, finance to um, wanting to be involved in conservation? What's that, what's that journey there? Because it seems, at least in the mind of a lot of people, that finance and what financial product and financial industry as broad has not always been the greatest thing for the planet and for us in general humans. So tell me, how does one wake up one morning? Is that how it goes, that you wake up one morning and you decide, okay, that's it, a do-over and I change? Or is there a long journey there? And if so, then please let us know what that journey was. Yeah, so I I probably have a slightly unique perspective for um, for an American. I, I grew up um, in Saudi Arabia, um, spend about half of my early life living um, in Europe, in the Middle East. Um, and originally, I think I, I, at a very young age, I wanted to be a veterinarian. That was, that was, that was my passion. Um, and at some point along the line, I think I, I looked at um, what, what can I do to, to be impactful in the world? And, and I think it, this is not something I could have articulated at a younger age, but as I now look and try to understand the world and where I fit into it, I think the edge that I always look for, whether it's investing in a market or being involved in a conservation project, for me, my personal edge is, is um, how, how do I, how do I get scale? How do, how do I, how do I move out of a linear relationship with my environment and how do I, how do I become immersed in an exponential um, aspect of whatever I do? I want it to have an outsized impact. So um, I, I, I think before I could truly articulate it, I think I was very, very careful. I, 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 I was, I was very, very unwilling to use what I consider to be humans' most valuable resource, which is our time. Um, I, I, I wasn't willing to give it away freely, and I was very careful how I applied my time. And I think when I looked at conservation and becoming a veterinarian, it was a very linear relationship. I could have a direct one-on-one -on -one impact relationship with one animal at, at a time. And I think as, as I thought about that, I thought maybe that's not the best use of my time, my skills. Maybe, maybe I might not be the best veterinarian. I might, I might not have the innate skills to, to become... Uh, a, a doctor, um, but perhaps my contribution could be elsewhere, and it could be in a much more meaningful, impactful way if I approach the problem from a solution that I was comparatively advantaged to solve. I probably wasn't smart enough uh, or, or wouldn't have been able to make it all the way through medical school. Um, and if I had, I might have been an average veterinarian, but I feel like the path that I've taken has been true to my passion of wanting to be involved in conservation, um, but in a way that allowed me to have a much greater impact than I think I could have had I just approached it from, I'm going to study, I'm going to be a trainee, um, and then eventually I'll become a veterinarian and I'll help an animal one by one. Um, and I think that's, you know, conservation is a very, for me, it's a... It, I think it comes down to um, I didn't I, I I've never liked bullies, and I think my 
my very visceral reaction to conservation is is driven by in very much um, a feeling that animals animals just want to live you know they don't want ferraris they don't they don't want fancy restaurants they just want to live they have a very simple approach to to you know their environment and you know we have the power to take away environments life from these animals and i feel like we have particularly in the west i think we we want to enjoy the concept of elephants and rhinos and giraffes roaming the plains uh, in Africa. Um, and it's a wonderful thought, but, but there's also a great responsibility uh, to, to the countries, to the communities, and to the animals you know, that have to share those scarce resources. So I think where it comes together for me is I made a decision early in life that uh, approaching problems as I understood them uh, intuitively, I was always looking for how can I have a greater impact? And I wanted to stay involved in conservation. But for me, I, I realized perhaps my path would be slightly different than how I got there. Um, and I'm glad that that happened. Um, you know, working in finance, uh, as you said, you know, there are definitely some negatives to it. Um, but I think I've learned a lot about what works and what doesn't work. Um, and what I see in conservation today is an amazing group of people that are very well-meaning. Um, you know, you have people who, ded who dedicate their entire lives as scientists, as, as researchers who are in the field, and they do a great, amazing work. There are amazing organizations. Uh, there are amazing people that um, donate money and, and support to, to these organizations. But I don't know that if we, if we look at the overall outcomes of conservation, I don't know that we would be able to say we've been very successful. We've been very effective. You know, all of the money, all of the, I don't know that the outcome would be something that we would say, yeah, we're, we're, we're pleased with this outcome. We think, you know, we think all of this effort went to um, something we wanted to see happen and, and we believe we've actually achieved that. You know, I think what we lack in conservation is perhaps um, some efficiency, some effectiveness that um, if I look at an average project, we generally start with great emotion about there's, there's, a, there's something happening, it's very dramatic, people get involved, people are very emotional, um, and they want to save a rhino, they want to save an orangutan. Um, over time, the way we have funded and putting my finance hat back on, the way we funded these efforts is generally we rely on charity to be at, at a state level, you know, government to government or individuals. Um, we rely on a very unsound source of funding for our projects. So we, we just we we map out these very large scale multi year projects that are very expensive to maintain. And then we create a financing model to execute on that plan, which relies on a very unstable short-term flow of donations. And, you know, very quickly, but COVID's a great example for conservation. Um, countries, you know, rightly, un understandably so, move their attention and their funding and their resourcing to other priorities, um, which had a direct negative impact for any charity that was trying to implement a long-term plan. So, you know, I think where where finance has a role in conservation is to try to find ways to eliminate what what we would look at as a asset liability mismatch between 
we have funds coming in, the assets to support this project. We have long-term commitments. You know, if this is going to work, this park will take 20 years to stand up. There's a massive amount of infrastructure uh, that has to be put in place um, up front. And how how do we manage the cash flows between those those two those two issues? Um, particularly when, for the most part, uh, these animals don't don't really throw off cash flows. You know, generally speaking, if you're going to invest in a business, you you want to discount a set of cash flows to today to to to, to you know explain to somebody this is the value of this thing. It's very difficult to apply a value to an animal to a to an area, uh, particularly if it doesn't throw off cash flows. So what are we left with? Um, you know, unfortunately. Um, the the answer generally comes down to four four options. One is uh, trophy hunting. Uh, um, so literally, the animal pays, um, or or the population pays by sacrificing some small percentage, and hopefully, of an animal uh, in order that the overall population can continue to live in this area. Um, if that is not an option, perhaps photographic safaris are an option. Uh, but the problem with that is, if you've ever been to Africa, um, much of the important landscape is not particularly photographically interesting. It's important, but you wouldn't necessarily go on a holiday to look at miles and miles and miles of dry, flat Mopani uh, scrub. You know, it, it, it's just not well suited. It's not the Okanvango Delta. Um, so what do you do with the 90% of Africa that isn't beautiful and interesting. You know, you, you can't really have photographic safaris there. So what you know, what what are your options? Um, you know, monoculture farming. You know, isn't a great option for for these animals. So we're left with a series of less than optimal ways to finance um, these conservation projects. So one of the things that we've been really focused on, um, particularly in in this time of COVID, was trying to understand how does how does the physical world um, how does it relate to all of the amazing changes that are happening um, in in regards to um, blockchain and uh, crypto um, even you know nfts were very hot for a while but you know what are these things that are coming you know what is this metaverse this this kind of parallel world that that is 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 developing and is it truly, completely separated from the physical world? Is there is there anything, you know, does it operate in, in, and exist in total isolation to the physical world, or is it perhaps a bridge to connect us? And that's one of the things that we're exploring now, which is really exciting for us. Um, when we look at the opportunity to, um, I'll give you an example. Let's say that you go up into your attic and you find a vase or a rug, and you look at it and you say, I don't, ha I don't have a need for this rug or this vase, maybe I'll sell it. Um, what's it worth? Well, if you go to your local community, your local village, you, you know, wherever you live, there's probably not many people that are interested in buying a vase in your immediate circle of friends and, 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 and people around you. But if you were to find a market for vases, if you were to find a market for rugs, obviously then you would be able to discover what is the value of, of that asset to someone who likes a vase or someone who likes a rug, yeah? So as we start thinking about the, and, and perhaps we can talk a little bit about COVID and COVID's impact on conservation, but as we started thinking about what are these animals? These animals are, or these landscapes. You know, we, we have 
under our responsibility um, when we're operating in these national parks, uh, we have access to truly unique assets and resources. You know, the, the very reason we're there is because the population of black and white southern rhino um, are, are were near extinction in, in early 2010. Um, so they're truly a scarce resource in, 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 in that sense. So if you, if you take the, the analogy of a vase and you say it has no intrinsic value, it has, there's, no, there's no way to monetize that vase. Uh, there's no liquidity that can be derived from that vase if, if, if it's just sitting in your attic. But if you take it to a marketplace where people are buying and selling vases, you will discover the clearing price that someone is willing to buy or sell vases, and you will be able to monetize that asset. So you say, well, what does that have to do with conservation? Well, in the time of COVID, most of the funding for many of these parks comes from tourism. You know, people from around the world come to visit. Um, in, in the time of COVID, everything was shut down all over the world, and, and these parks lost the primary source of revenue that kept everything going. So we had to start thinking about how do we continue to find ways to connect people to these parks, to these animals, to keep them relevant. Um, we decided to work with an organization called Real Vision, which is a wonderful um, group that produces long-form content for the financial markets. So they have interviews very similar to this, um, long-form, uh, in-depth conversations with various market participants about their views about the market, about their, their history, um, how they, you know, how they became the person that they were. And it's a very interesting format and it's very creative. Um, and, and we said, well, let's work with these guys um, and let's create basically a Netflix for conservation. So rather than going on YouTube and looking at uh, a series of videos of lions or elephants, um, we said, what, what's really going on here? You know, what's really going on with Netflix is it's, it's a network, yeah? It's, it's, it's a platform that connects people to topics that they're interested in. And the real value is not necessarily the content, it's the platform itself, yeah? It's, it's the, the more people that come to the network, the more valuable the network becomes. And it's, it's, not, it's not a one-way street. You know, if you think of YouTube, you not only watch videos, but you can also post, upload videos. So the idea of a network effect for, for Peace Parks, which is the, the organization that, that I'm affiliated with in Africa, was to say, how do we connect people um, to these par parks, particularly when we can't actually visit them? Um, so we started with, we're going to change the format. We're actually going to create a platform like Netflix. So we, we, we now have um, a unique delivery mechanism to share the park with the world. So what are we doing? We're taking that vase, we're taking it out of the attic, and we're taking it to a marketplace, and we're creating liquidity for that asset. So in our world, what that means is we're not just taking a video of a rhino and posting it on YouTube. What we're doing is we're bringing the reality of being a veterinarian of being the CEO of Peace Parks, of being a uh, counter-poaching ranger. And we're, we're telling their story through video on these channels. So we're, we're connecting someone sitting in San Francisco that loves, loves the charity with the actual human beings that are sitting in Africa trying to do these jobs. Um, and just like we're talking right now on, on my iPhone, um, you know, they're in the park. Um, they have 5G, uh, so we can, we can stream content directly from the field. Uh, and we can actually tell their personal stories. And what I found um, 
on every single project I've worked on is what people remember and what's actually important to people is not if we're down in Tobago looking for a Dutch shipwreck, if we're in uh, Egypt looking for um, evidence of pre-pharaonic uh, habitat um, and settlement structures, what the people who are involved in those projects remember from those projects are, are the connections in the experiences with other people. Um, and I think what we found is, if you remember, uh, if, if I'm old enough to, to, to remember having watched the, the Jacques Cousteau series um, on, on television. Um, and what were people doing? You know, they, they were looking at fish. They were looking at dolphins. Absolutely. Well, what were they really doing? They were living that adventure through through this show. And and they were connecting with other human beings. So what we what we want to achieve with this new project is we want to take that that metaphorical vase that we want to take a rhino and we want to actually bring it as something that people can participate, be involved with, uh, adopt, if you will, um, that individual animal. And you know, for the first time in 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 our history, we have the ability through blockchain technology to start looking at ways to actually metaphorically convey the spirit of these animals um, in, into a relationship with somebody sitting in Singapore um, that you can actually have a direct connection with that animal, not just the concept. So we're super excited about that. Um, the other aspect of this, which gets really back to the financial markets and finding sustainability for that asset liability mismatch problem is as we look at the world and how it's evolving, uh, many of these parks have access to uh, hydropower, solar power, uh, um, stranded energy sources. And as we look at what's happening, whether you love Bitcoin or you hate Bitcoin, you know what 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 it allows for the first time in history to do is if you're mining Bitcoin inside of a national park in Malawi, for example, um, using 100% sustainably sourced stranded energy from a waterfall you have the opportunity for the first time to capture that energy that otherwise would go to waste. It would just continue. Gravity would just take it down the river. Uh, you, have a, you have a means to monetize that energy source in a completely non-invasive way. It's not doing anything to the, to the environment. In fact, you're actually now creating that, that, that mythical cash flow that I was talking about earlier. You now actually have inside of this conservation park you have the opportunity to monetize, create a cash flow that provides the financing opportunity on a sustainable basis, not just for the animals in the park, but also it creates jobs. If you're going to put a, 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 a mining facility, a Bitcoin mining facility uh, inside of a national park, there's no pollution. It's not, it's not doing anything. It's not degrading the environment. But what it is doing is it's creating a business in that location. And that business needs to be serviced. Uh, the people that work in that location, they're going to need housing, they're going to need food. So that creates opportunities for jobs um, in, the, in the local surrounding communities. So, you know, it's, these are the sorts of solutions that I think we have to move towards. Um, the, the binary outcomes of, you know, we have no place for animals um, doesn't make sense, you know, for the survival of our species, it, um, nor does Having a militant view of humans should just leave these animals completely alone. These communities have to leave the parks. These animals just have to have complete control of these areas. Neither one of those options, you know, are, are, are realistic. We have to find a way for animals and humans to share 
the scarce resources, the, the land, the water, uh, and find ways to make it sustainable. And that's, that's really my focus. And I think um, what drives me is trying to take what, what we do in finance and, and apply it in a way that, that, that is actually useful and, and, and makes a difference for us. So I think you've taken us to the digital 21st century edge with all the terms that are flying around here and most of the audience is familiar with. But let's bring the, this down back to human beings' um, experience, mm. which I think we all very interested in understanding. Um, so in order to do what you do uh, pre-COVID, and then we can talk about how that has physically changed, um, can we do this sort of things from a computer and never ever put our foot on the ground and never have to experience what it's like to be a conservative, you know, a person who does conservation on the ground? Because I think there's a lot of romanticism about it. There's also a lot of flawed stereotypes like, you know, the only way to do conservation is maybe to go there, fly an helicopter, grab some animals, mm -hmm. left, right, etc. So, so, you know, um, as much as I think those stereotypes exist because they're probably some of them true, it's always interesting for people to understand that coming from the career that you came from and moving into conservation, was that actually a really big change in even lifestyle? Um, and, and what it demanded of you, is it very physical? Um, is it financially demanding because you have to basically stop buying other stuff because you have to invest in travel, you have a you have to live in the local country. Is it dangerous physically because you're upset a lot of people? These are the things I think that um, and you know, help us understand the context in which these battles can occur. Yeah. Um, the reality is, you know, most people will never have the opportunity to travel from their home country to a place like Africa. You know, it's just financially, it's just it's it's beyond most people's means. So what can we do? to create those connections for people. You know, how do we, if you can't go there yourself, whether it's because of COVID or just the reality of few of us will ever have these opportunities, you know, there must be something about Africa. There must be something about, you know, these open spaces, these landscapes, you know, whether it's in the Arctic, whether it's Africa, you know, it must say something about who we are that we, we you know, there is, there is a need for people to connect to these places. So, you know, I think technology is, is a tool, nothing more. You know, it's 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 a way for us to create richer, deeper, more meaningful connections for people uh, to other people or to or to to these landscape, these places. And you know, I think um, there absolutely is the opportunity for people to experience Africa and understand what is the you know what is the life of a of of a veterinarian of a ranger like. Um, in a virtual way that, that wasn't possible even 10 years ago. And I think, you know, we'll see a lot more of that. Um, in terms of, you know, if you are physically uh, involved in conservation, it, it's, it is very difficult. Um, you know, the, the sacrifices that people make um, are really, really difficult to describe for, for me um, and the world that I come, come from um, to try to share it with other people. I, I think, you know, the, the, um, uh, the life of, of someone working in conservation, um, is physically demanding, uh, financially, uh, not rewarding. 
it, it can be quite dangerous. You know, people are um, operating in uh, environments where there are wild animals, um, you know, scorpions all the way through to Cape Buffalo and elephant. Uh, typically, um, man, many of the parks that we work in in Southern Africa, um, poaching is, a, is, a, is an issue. So um, there's, there's oftentimes um, quite a bit of tension between the communities uh, in the parks. Um, the counter poaching operations that, that we are involved in to try to deter um, illegal entry into the parks um, and to stop uh, poachers before they are able to shoot and kill an animal uh, is a very dangerous business. Um, and the people that are involved in these activities are, are all in situations of great physical danger. Um, and, you know, unfortunately for, for all involved, you know, there, there is conflict uh, and people are, are wounded, are, are, are killed. Um, you know, so we, we lost a, a great conservationist in uh, Mali uh, just a few weeks ago. He was, he was gunned down um, on a patrol. Um, so it, it, it can be a very, very difficult um, place to operate. And it's, um, and it's certainly something that, you know, the people that choose these lifestyles, um, you know, ha have my have my deep respect. Um, so I, I think, um, you know, we when we when we romanticize, you know, the, the Jane Goodall um, view of the world, you know, there is there is a very difficult side to it. These people, um, the commitments that they have to make. Uh, and I think that, you know, from my perspective, that makes our work uh, and our responsibility to find sustainable ways to finance these activities so that we can keep these people who are willing to make these sacrifices in the field uh, really all the more important. And I think that gets back to an earlier topic we were discussing, which is, you know, what is this connection um, that we're looking at um, between people and, and these, these landscapes? You know, why does conservation matter for us? And I think most of the people that that I've come across in the industry, I think we all share one thing, which is we all yearn for a feeling of of being part of something that's bigger than than us individually. Um, and I think the satisfaction that whether you're involved as a as a small donor, whether you've committed your entire life to um, working in the field, I, I think the aspect of giving giving in to your to to pursue something that has a greater meaning than your own individual life and circumstances, I think actually gives us all meaning and purpose. And I think that's, that, that is what I find is, is what keeps people in conservation. And, you know, my hope is that when people are able to, even if it's remotely, even if it's virtually through these new technologies, if they're able to experience just a, any small part of that feeling of, being part of something larger than themselves, giving their own lives purpose and meaning, um, I think we've we've done something very important, um, which is in in the in the in the markets. Um, you don't give me something for free; we exchange value, uh, and we have to agree that it's it's equivalent value, or, or or a transaction doesn't happen. I think one of the things we've missed in conservation, uh, financing it through phil philanthropy primarily, is that concept of it's okay for there to be an exchange here. It's, it, you know, you, someone donating their money or their time to conservation, um, you know, 
they're they're being brought into something larger than themselves. They're you know they're actually getting something incredibly value and fulfilling. And I, I think that's something we should we should celebrate and and try to capture uh, more of. And that's that's really kind of my my personal focus. And so you talked about uh, Jacques Cousteau and and this era. And I think you, then you talked about uh, Jen Jen Goodall. Uh, and I think I remember scanning through the internet uh, prior to this podcast and seeing a wonderful picture of you with her uh, on a beach somewhere. Um, and she represents obviously such a um, an era of uh, both yeah. science, research, conservation to some extent, and also a a sort of a global thinking about uh, what are, what is our you know what our behavior towards animal and the planet. Do you think that this era? <clears throat> I mean, Cousteau is long gone, but uh, do you think that this era um, can be bridged, and the new era of conservation and um, big big people like this, so well known figure, can be replaced by technology to some extent and make it therefore much more approachable for everybody? even if you're not special, because we don't have TV anymore that have these programs that everybody's watching because everybody's watching everything. So this, this is somewhat lost. And given, given the age generation that we're talking about, I don't see perhaps because I don't know enough about the field. I don't see new younger folks in the millennial that are such well-known figure as she was or as Cousteau was. Um, So are we transitioning into a much more, technology uh, front-hand battle to save the planet and to uh, to help with whatever's not yet destroyed? It's a great question, um, probably beyond me. Um, I can tell you my observations. Um, you know, Jane, Jane is an interesting person and, and you know, she has, she has a, a public persona and, and, you know, when you see her in person, and you see how other people relate to her, um, it, it's almost as if there's this bubble around her. When you're physically in her presence, people are afraid to, to approach her, to connect with her. And, um, you know, I, I had a great, great experience once where we were, uh, she was visiting and, and we were, we had a few people over to the farm and everyone was afraid to approach her. And, and, and you know, I, I totally understand that. Um, and I think she was quite unhappy because she was, you know, sitting, hoping someone would talk to her and everyone was, was afraid to approach her. But she started looking out and, and there were some horses in a field next to us. And there was a there was a small, small string quartet that was playing some nice music, you know, background music for this party. And Jane looked over and no one was talking to her. So she looked over into the field and she started observing the horses and what was interesting about that moment was those horses had never heard Mozart in their lives. I promise you, but they were focused on these instruments and they were listening to this music. And it was just such a perfect sort of, I think, encapsulation of what the question you've just asked that there were a group of 30 or 40 people that were at this one place just to meet and interact with Jane, the, the, the movie star, the TV star, and they were afraid to engage with her out of respect. But, but nonetheless, there was no connectivity there. So what was she doing? She was doing what she was born to do, which was she was observing nature. And she was watching these horses and, and, and how they were interacting with, with something they'd never heard before, which music. So, you know, I think that that's a perfect 
you know, kind of that, that fourth wall of, of just eat, when you have the chance to be with Jane, you know, the people were, were hesitant to do so. So I think to answer your question, I think there are many, many more. And Jane, and Jane always says, you know, think, 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 think locally, act locally. You know, you don't have to go to Africa to make a difference in conservation. You can work you can work in your own community. Um, you know, she has a wonderful program called Roots and Shoots. And the whole idea of it is to have your children in their school find a project that's relevant to conservation in your area that they can focus on a small stream, you know, whatever it is. Um, I think what is wonderful about the next generation of conservationists is they're passionate but they're tech savvy and they've learned they're influencers and they have followings. And I think what we're going to find is Cousteau and Jane Goodall came, came into our worlds, into our homes from TV and we all watched the same thing. Um, I think what we're seeing now is social media platforms are allowing people who may not be as famous to have their voices heard and, and to connect with people. And, you know, they have their own followings. And I think that's a fundamental change that's happening throughout society and I think it's a it's an unequip you know it's absolutely a positive for conservation because there's no question in my mind that I was born in 1970. Um, you know we really didn't have con you know conservation in many ways was kind of became uh, a concept that people focused on in the 1970s. Um, and, and Jane actually once said, I think the most wonderful thing that gave me hope is she said, you know, I I hope that my her generation, I hope my generation. It is the last generation that leaves this planet worse than we found it, and I think I think that I think that is something we we may be seeing. You know, I think not necessarily my generation, but I think the generation coming up behind us. I think they are absolutely focused on on making sure that you know that inflection point. Um, you know, they they leave the world better than they find it. And will they be successful or not? I don't know. But it's in their conscious, their collective consciousness, and it's in, and I know it's important to them. So I, I have hope. That's good. Um, I think another question that for me is is very fascinating, which is part of what you describe as your new your new um, business approach to this. Is um, I was struck listening to a Netflix documentary where I heard someone said, "For as long as an animal is worth more dead than." it's worth alive, we're not going to change any of this thing. And I thought this perverse incentive uh, of having developed several negative incentives around doing the right thing is, is very pervasive in medicine. We know that we don't do prevention, we do, we do uh, disease care, disease management. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's strikingly true in environment, I think, as well. And I think changing the incentive is perhaps a very good way to to go around it. What do you think? Yeah, for sure. And I think that, you know, that relates directly to this concept of if people don't understand nature and conservation, they're not going to care for it. They're not going to value it. And I think one of the aspects of um, understanding the importance of nature uh, is best described as um, there's a wonderful organization called WildAid. And they work primarily in in Southeast Asia, uh, messaging and you know they uh, Yao Ming uh, in China and Hong Kong with uh, shark fin. Um, you know they've worked. Um, one of the projects that that was just absolutely brilliant was they identified in this was a few years back. They identified a um, 
seven, I think seven or eight uh, of the private schools in Hanoi uh, represented the bulk of the um, the school children who came from a certain social economic bracket um, that would have whose parents would have been able to afford uh, the cost of of a rhino horn. You know, and 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 this is going back now a few years, but you know the retail price. You know, we we heard stories that uh, a large male uh, rhino horn you know, could trade for as much as a million U.S. Um, in, in, in Hanoi. How do you, how do you stop, you know, to your point, you know, you're in, in, in Mozambique, um, in a small village, in a community, you know, next to a national park, um, the, you know, the, the per capita GDP might be two, 200, 400 U.S. dollars. Um, you know, that, that poacher, if he's successful, might make ten thousand U.S. dollars in a night. Um, you know that will change his life, his family's life, his community's life uh, for a generation. So, you know, you're not going to stop as long as someone's willing to pay a million dollars for a horn at the end of the chain. There will be a young man who has uh, no better option than to go into the bush, risk his life to shoot this animal. Um, you know, he's not doing it because it's fun. He's, you know, he, his incentives are are are, are very clear. Um, and, and you can't blame them, you know, and, and I think what, what this charity did, which I thought was fantastic was they focused on these school kids and they, they held, um, a series of, of, uh, events where ultimately, you know, I don't know what the number was, three or four children from each one of these schools were actually brought to South Africa and they were brought to a rhino orphanage and in this rhino orphanage, um, was, uh, filled with baby rhinos whose mothers had been shot and killed. Um, and these animals, you know, had, had been found by, by the rangers the next day. Um, and that's one of the, you know, I've, I've been on the ground. I've, you know, I've seen uh, a mother rhino, um, you know, dead or, or worse in some cases dying, you know, with, with, with her young child next door. And it's, it's one of the most horrific things I've ever had to experience in my life. But they brought these young children to these orphanages and they, you know, they explained to them what they were seeing, why these animals were orphaned. And then they sent these kids back um, to, to, to their parents. And, you know, I think the recognition of we're not going to change the, the incentives, the behavior patterns of a 55 year old male. Um, I'm, I'm probably pretty set in my ways as well. You know, you're not, you're not going to change certain things about who I am and what I think and what I want to do. But, you've planted these seeds in these young children and they go back. And, you know, if anyone in the audience has, you know, 12, 13 year old uh, children, you know, when they're focused on something, they're, they're fairly persuasive. So, you know, what, what are we doing? We're, we're creating, you know, we're breaking that chain. It's yes, granted, it's a generational chain, but we're starting to plant those seeds of, you know, what, if you understand the consequence um, owning a rhino horn in Vietnam, what does that actually mean? What are the implications for, you know, a baby rhino in Africa? If you take that back with you, you know, you may start to change behavior patterns. And I think there's been some great, great outcomes that they can actually document um, either for shark finning, for rhino, the rhino horn dehorning campaigns, um, you know, where there's actually been material declines in um, the purchase prices as well as the quantity demanded of, of these products. So, you know, they do work, but they do take time. Uh, but I, you know, I think to your question, um, you know, those those connections are absolutely critical to make. Whether you're proactively trying to connect someone to something they care about, or you're using this as an opportunity 
to educate somebody about what are what are potentially you know, the the unknown, if not unintended, consequences of 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 an action like poaching a rhino. So before we um, we ask you what's your weird sauce for life, uh, let me ask you one more question, which I think is is connected to what you just said um, in relation of this pandemic that we are sadly still in. Um, where isolation, lockdowns, various formats of uh, separation uh, that has been put upon us um, because of public health has brought a lot of um, realization of what was missing in a lot of people's life, uh, ability to even go into a green space for weeks on end, ability to smell fresh air, to let alone be around other people or animals. Uh, Do you think that this quote-unquote great reset, although I'm not sure it's that big of a reset, um, has actually had an impact with more eyes on computers and more sense of what was lacking. And could that be a good influence for conservation as a as an envi- as an industry? Could that help? I, th- I think temporarily, um, we, we all experience, you know, feelings of, of, isolation, uh, lack of connection. And I think, um, you know, some people have, have looked at that and said, you know, I want to rethink what's important to me in my life. You know, what, what, what is it that, um, what is that I care about? What should I be doing? Um, and I think, you know, connecting, I can speak only for myself on this. Um, you know, I, I was like many of us, you know, I was constantly on planes. I was traveling to many places, um, you know, and my world slowed down to a halt. And, it, and, and, you know, it it gave me the opportunity to, you know, not just reflect and think about what what was important to me, but it also gave me the opportunity to spend quality time with 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 my my family, with, you know, with 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 people that, you know, we were so busy living life, um, we didn't realize how quickly it was passing by. So, you know, I, I think one something that, that I've always tried to live by for, for an approach is I truly believe, you know, none of us, none of us control the circumstances in which we've come into this world. You know, I'm, I'm extremely lucky. Um, how I, how and where I came into the world relative to somebody that was born into a, you know, small community um, on the outskirts of Kruger National Park in Mozambique. You know, it's just, it's not fair. Um, You know, life doesn't start out fair. Um, But I truly believe that you can't focus on life being unfair. You, you, You have to look at life as you don't control what happens to you, but you do get to control how you react to what happens to you. And I think no matter where you come from, whether you started at a very low level or a very high level, what defines who you truly are is how you choose to react to what happens to you. And that's what makes for a, a, a satisfying or an unsatisfying life. So I think, you know, for me, COVID, and I think for many people that I've spoken to about this, that chance to reflect and to think about, yeah, this, this was a horrible event for us, all of us. But the question is, what do you do with that? You know, do, do you only look at the bad or do you say, yeah, it, it wasn't good, but, you know, we we're stronger, you know, as 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 a world. You know, we, we've 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 put ourselves through a situation none of us wanted to be in, you know, but what do you take from that? Um, you know, so for me and for conservation, 
we had to look at the situation and say, yeah, we're, we have no revenue coming in because we have no tourism. So let's look and see what can we do. You know, what, what this has happened to us, um, but perhaps this is the opportunity that we need to invest the time and the money to create a virtual channel to allow people to connect to these parks in a way that we just hadn't thought of was important before this. So, you know, I think absolutely we will probably mean revert back to our lives quicker than many of us maybe even want. But um, I hope some of that stays with us. Some, some, some of the thoughtfulness that perhaps we've that, that that's been perhaps a gift um, through this process. So to conclude this very interesting conversation, and again, I encourage the, the audience to check all the links that we'll put into uh, your episode to see how they can get involved, contribute, uh, get more knowledge, because it always starts with knowledge first and then motivation or motivation, but, but knowledge is essential. Uh, so please check the link notes of uh, your episode. And to conclude this, um, of course, like what we do with all our guests, um, after such an interesting life, which is hopefully not finished, um, what has been your weird sauce? What, what has been the weird sauce that you, you want to share with the audience that has powered you through that and, uh, will power you through the rest of your years? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, for me, the special sauce is, is actually something that that's available to all of us, um, Risk is, is my special sauce. Um, risk is, is like a spice that you add to a dish. Um, and normally when, when, when perhaps you think about risk, you, know, you think about it in terms of something that you want to avoid, you don't want in your life, um, that it's a bad thing. And um, you know, particularly in markets, you know, risk is often something that, that we spend a lot of time trying to to understand, trying to manage, um, and and where we can avoid it. But portfolio theory also has this concept of adding additional risk assets to a portfolio can actually reduce the overall expected volatility of return. And in fact, you have to take on more risk in order to achieve an outcome that that, that you seek. So. I think when I, it's funny, you, you mentioned the, the, my, my age, that, that's actually one of my tricks is um, when I think about my age, I, I think about it uh, the inverse of, of how we normally think about it. So I, I say to myself, if I live to be 82 years old um, and I'm 50 now, I have 32 years left in my life. I'm not, I haven't lived 50 years. I have possibly 32 years left. What, what is that? That's, that's, a, you know, that's 11,000 odd, 11,800 odd days left in my life. You know, that, that's very clarifying. Um, that's, that's not a lot of time. You know, that's, that's 1600 Tuesday nights. You know, this is, this is, I'm talking to you on one of my remaining 1600 Tuesday nights that I will have. And, you know, I think when you start to measure and value your time in that sense, it becomes very important to you. And, and you start to think about, you know, what, what am I doing? So I think my special sauce is recognizing how valuable, you know, the, the time that we hopefully have. I mean, I could hit, get hit by a bus tomorrow. So, you know, it, this may be my last Tuesday. Um, so I think once once you put yourself in that frame of mind of you understand how valuable this time is, um, 
Jeff Bezos had, I think, I think he came up with this concept of regret minimization, um, which, which is, I think is just a fantastic theory of he makes all of his decisions, if I understand this correctly, on the basis of not what could go wrong, but if I don't do this thing, if I choose not to act, will I regret having not done it? And I think that's just wonderful because I, that's how I try to live my life. I, the one thing I swore to myself was when I was younger was that no matter what, I didn't want to have regret. Whatever my life was, I just wanted it to be interesting. I wanted it to be useful, but I didn't want it. I didn't want it to end and, and end with regrets. So I think, um, you know, for me, that special sauce is is nobody likes to be outside of their comfort zone. Um, but one step beyond where you're comfortable is where all the growth and all the fun is. And I think that that to me is if if you can if you can add that spice of risk into your life, it it it, it really for me that that is that's where that's where we really grow, and and I think that's what makes life worth worth living. Jason Pasinetti, thank you very much for the most precious thing, uh, time, and also wishing you many, many Tuesdays ahead, as many as, as 30 years plus plus can provide. And um, stay safe, as, as safe as one can be, considering that risk is your thing. Um, and thank you once again for uh, this long conversation. Thank you very much. If this conversation stopped you in your track, share it with your network. You never know whose life you might change for the better. Thank you for listening. Stay curious about our next guest and stay curious about life. <laughs>